Welcome to Neuroscience CME-TV, your personal link to the most widely recognized experts in the dynamic world of the neurosciences. Independently developed by CME Outfitters, the award-winning accredited provider of continuing education in Rockville, Maryland. Hello, my name is Dr. Timothy Willand. I am the chief of the Division of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at Massachusetts General Hospital and associate professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Thank you very much for taking your time away from your very busy schedule to join us for this Neuroscience See Me Live, an on-demand activity entitled Reconsidering Adult ADHD. This Neuroscience See Me activity is brought to you by See Me Outfitters, a best-in-class accredited provider of continuing education for clinicians across the globe. Today's program is being streamed live and will be archived at www.neurosciencecme.com. Be sure to share this link with colleagues or team members who are not able to join us today, and I encourage you to visit the website for additional educational activities. I also encourage everyone to join it on our live Twitter conversation at hashtag AdultADHD. We will be monitoring the Twitter feed and responding to your tweets as they come in. And don't forget to stay with us for our After the Show segment when you are invited to call or email us with your most challenging cases or questions. Our goal is to ultimately help you improve the lives of your patients. So please, submit your questions, cases, and feedback. And with that, welcome to our show. I'm really excited about today's program, and I look forward to discussing real-world clinical management issues that will help you diagnose and manage your adults with ADHD. With me today are my esteemed colleagues. Dr. Doris Greenberg, Associate Clinical Professor of Pediatrics at Mercer University School of Medicine and attending pediatrician at Memorial University Medical Center, Children's Hospital in Savannah, Georgia. Welcome to the show, Doris. Thank you so much. Dr. Greenberg, notably, has been in the area of expertise for over 46 years. And Dr. Adelaide Sherwood-Robb. Dr. Robb is the Chief of the Division of Psychology and Behavioral Health and Director of Psychiatry Research at the Center for Translational Science at the Children's National Health System. She is also Professor of Psychiatry and Pediatrics at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the show, Adelaide. Thank you for having me. Let me start by reviewing our two learning objectives for our program today. First, we'll screen adult patients for a history of ADHD and evaluate for symptoms, especially those with comorbid other disorders. Next, we want to implement a comprehensive treatment strategy that is personalized with patient input and includes both pharmacologic and non-pharmacologic approaches to the management of adults with ADHD. One thing that I'm really excited about is the way we have integrated the voice of the patient throughout this activity. Patients are spending over 90% of their time learning about their disease online, so we know 
That is where our patients are going to be getting education. CME Outfitters and I developed a survey that was provided to patient leaders who are patients themselves and also are very active on various social media and discussion forums related to adults with ADHD. So the content of this program represents feedback from a social community of nearly one-half million patients with ADHD. Doris, first, let's look at the scope of ADHD in the world. Can you tell us about shed some light on the prevalence of ADHD? Well, it's approximately present in 8.7% of children up to 15, and about half that number in adults between 18 and 44. I don't think it ever goes away. It just seems to diminish in terms of its impairment by about a half. And it's also associated with an awful lot of psychiatric comorbidity and many, many impairments. And in a chronic course, it can be very devastating in terms of lifestyle and quality of life. And how many kids do you think uh, continue to have ADHD into adulthood? Probably about half of them. About half. Adelaide, accurate diagnosis is obviously critical in the optimal management. Can you review kind of briefly the, DS, the, the DSM-5, the new criteria for ADHD? Absolutely. One of the important things to remember is if you're talking about people who are adults, 17 and older, you only need five out of nine symptoms. So we have the symptoms of inattention, the not paying attention to details, making careless mistakes, not listening when someone's talking to you, or losing things that you need, like for my adult patients, their cell phone, their wallet, their credit cards. And then the hyperactive impulsive symptoms, so being fidgety and squirmy, feeling restless, feeling like you're always on the go, you can't have downtime, and the impulsivity things, shouting out answers, interrupting people in the middle of a conversation, not being able to wait in line at the DMV. So what's interesting is you can have, even though a lot of adults have more of the predominantly inattentive symptoms, they may also have some hyperactivity and impulsivity, even if they have the predominant inattentive subtype. Absolutely. Um, can you help uh, for people who have been following sort of the change from DSM-4 to DSM-5, could you help us understand what are some of the key changes between the two diagnostic systems? Absolutely. So the first one that we already talked about is when you're an adult patient, you only need five out of nine symptoms in the category, not six. The second one is the age of onset has been increased to age 12 because in research there was no difference in the course for people that had an early onset versus a middle school onset. And I think that's really helpful for our adult patients because they can't remember their behavior in first grade. But most of them can remember their struggles in middle school or age 12. The last big change is that people who have autism spectrum disorder are now also allowed to have the diagnosis of ADHD. That's no longer an exclusion in DSM-5. That's great, and thank you for that thoughtful uh, answer there because I think that's really important in terms of getting a thorough and proper diagnosis. I want to shift now, and I really want to get our audience involved. You'll see a question on your screen, and here is the question. How long does it typically take for individuals reporting difficulty managing their lives before receiving a diagnosis of ADHD? Is it A, three months, B, six months, C, a year, or D, a few years? Please provide your answer now, and we will discuss those answers shortly. While we're waiting for the audience response doors, what can be some of the consequences of delaying a diagnosis of ADHD in adults? 
can impair every aspect of one's life, but mainly educational, getting along with relationships. Physical health can be very much devastated by the things that people do in risk-taking. But work-related difficulties, I think, are some of the major ones that we see. And the untreated ADHD people are far less likely to stay in school, far more likely to marry but divorce. They have many more problems keeping friends. They may make them, but they don't keep them. They have a higher incidence of run-ins with others and a lot more psychological stress. So you'll see anxiety, depression more uh, in those people who haven't been treated. So um, Adelaide talked a little bit about sort of impulsivity and sort of riskiness. What about risky behaviors? Well, they, they go before they think, so that oftentimes they may do things before they've thought it through. Uh, they may have accidents and injuries, tobacco use and drug abuse. Um, they may have terrible driving skills, many losing their license or having wrecks, speeding tickets. And if they have comorbid opposition or conduct disorders, they may involve going before a judge and actually being incarcerated far more than in those people who are not ADHD. So it really is important that we get a diagnosis for these patients because they truly are being impacted by their disorder. Okay, now let's go back and see what our audience answered to our polling question. The question was, how long does it typically take for individuals reporting difficulties managing their lives before receiving a diagnosis of ADHD? And now everybody's waiting for, how did they poll? Well, it turns out 39% said A, three months, only 7% said B, six months, 14% said C, a year, but the vast majority, 77% said D, a few years. Before I ask our faculty to comment, I want to share what our patient leaders had to say. We ask a similar question to our patient leaders about how long it takes to get a diagnosis. Let's hear what they had to say. More times than not, I would say that they would take a few years, really, to get preliminary diagnosis, and more often than not, it was an incorrect diagnosis. From my experience, the adults that have kids that are recently diagnosed get their diagnosis right afterwards. They may have suspected it, they may not have, but when their child gets the diagnosis, that often sort of turns on a light for them and they think, oh, maybe that's what this is. So then they get diagnosed. First. I mean, a lot of people get diagnosed in their 40s and 50s. That's a long time to go without a diagnosis. I don't know if I am typical or not, but what I am hearing from my community is that it takes years, and uh, it took me many, many years. I was not diagnosed until I was over 60 years old, six zero. And of course, I saw doctors all of my life. But I would say a lot of times for adults, with ADHD and that's who I work with, it does typically take a long time for them to be diagnosed. You know, so Doris and Adelaide, what was interesting is while um, our, uh, our participants online right now said that there was some who got it within three months, I think there was a lot of convergence on the length, the chronicity of the illness, but how long it took to make the diagnosis. So comments on that? Well, I think one of the big comments is that people will come in presenting with some of those comorbid symptoms, 
I feel anxious, I feel depressed, things aren't going well in my life. And the doctors may focus in on those depressive and anxious symptoms and treat those, clinically treat those, and may not ask, before that happened, what was it like when you were younger? What was high school like? What was middle school like? And one of the things I always like to do is go and get that past history to see if there were any kind of struggles in elementary, middle school, high school that give me a tip off as a clinician, oh, maybe we started with ADHD symptoms and life got harder. They often come in in crisis and having difficulties. They've been fired or they're out looking for work or they're having difficulty managing finances or they haven't finished a project in 23 years and they come in and that's when they will often present. Uh, when you're dealing with a crisis, you're putting the fires out, but you need to go further and find out what started the fire. Very, very true and very helpful. Now let's try to translate some of the issues that we've discussed to a real-world patient, Ms. Solano, who's a 42-year-old woman who comes for consultation by her primary care physician. She was diagnosed with anxiety and depression and prescribed an SSRI. She has had no improvement in symptoms and is feeling overwhelmed. Let's hear what she has to say. Hi, doctor. Thanks for seeing me. I've been having some difficulty at work, and my family doctor, Dr. Giordano, um, gave me medication. I'm not sure for depression or what he said might be anxiety. The medication didn't help at all, and he thought that having a consultation with you might help me find the right treatment for me. Um, well, work has been difficult. I, I got a promotion. Well, the assistant buyer left, and my boss asked that I step in and do our job. And I'm struggling staying focused, and I'm feeling overwhelmed. And this is a job that requires someone who's well-organized, and that is just not one of my strengths. And I'm feeling like I'm going to fail at this promotion, and I feel bad that I will disappoint my boss. I'm good with people. I just need to be busy where I'm active and in motion, not sitting at a desk reading reports or working on a schedule or timetable. Is this new? No. I've been this way my whole life. In school, I barely survived. I think I passed because my teachers liked me. Doris, Mrs. Solana was given a diagnosis of anxious depression. What do you think about the diagnosis, and what do you what do you do that think about these delays in making an accurate diagnosis that overlap with depression and anxiety and maybe ADHD? Well, I think probably if you look back at this woman, she was probably a quiet ADD p patient who didn't raise cane in class and therefore was never diagnosed. But I think that underlying her anxiety is the fact that she's had faulty. Diff uh, faulty problems with her memory and her organizational skills and this has given her a very low esteem. She doesn't learn well in new situations and it's very uncomfortable for her so she's feeling anxious and somewhat depressed in the fact that she's not succeeding so I can understand that as being an overlay from long-standing chronic ADHD. So what, uh, what percentage of ADHD patients have depression? Let's start with that. ADHD with depression? I think if you look at the papers by Kessler and also by Biederman, about 20 to 30 percent of people with ADHD have depression. 
If you flip it around and look the other way, how many people with depression also have comorbid ADHD? It's again about 20%. And I think if you don't take a wide lens, you'll miss one of the two sets of symptoms. And when you do that, your patients don't get better with the treatment that you try. And so I think, especially if you're a clinician, you're treating somebody for, let's say they come in with depression like she's complaining about, you've given them an antidepressant and they're not getting better, take another look at the history and see if you're missing a set of symptoms, maybe from earlier in childhood or adolescence or college, and that's what's contributing to not functioning well. I think, that, I, I think that's really critical in that understanding the, what we call reverse comorbidity, sometimes at 20% of individuals with depression also have ADHD is not something to, to let slide, remember that. Let's try another case. Uh, this is Mr. Williams who comes to me as a referral from his company. He has been seen by a social worker and is struggling with his job performance and his social worker actually thinks he may have bipolar disorder. Let's listen to what Mr. Williams has to say. Hi doctor, nice to meet you. Uh, yes, the social worker at my job made me this appointment to come see you for a consultation or whatever. Oh, sure. Um, I'm, I'm an assistant project manager. I work uh, for an engineering company that does environmental projects across the state. Um, I've been there about a year. I like the job because I don't have to sit behind a desk all day. Um, I, I get to travel around the state to our different locations, bring the contracts and blueprints and paperwork and samples of things like marble and stone to the job sites. Um, my boss is frustrated with me because when I'm in the office, I don't finish my task before I move on to something else. He tends to nitpick. He says I get distracted too easily, I need to focus. And when two or three engineers give me something to do all at once, I, I get flustered, frustrated, and I may get into an argument with them. My boss had me talk to the social worker in our HR department. Um, we talked about my job history. Uh, this is my eighth job in I, I don't know, maybe 10 or 15 years. Um, she asked me about the arguments and my less than satisfactory work in the office. Uh, I, I, I told her I, I get frustrated by office work and pushing papers. Uh, I've always had problems concentrating and you know, sticking with stuff. When I told her that I'm just a energetic, restless kind of person, but I do get mood swings. She said that I may be bipolar and I should come see you. No, doctor, I, I have never been to a psychiatrist before. Um, well, my family doctor talked about sending me to counseling when I was in high school because I got in trouble a lot, but that never happened. So Adelaide, what do you think about this case and what can, can clinicians do to determine what is going on with Mr. Williams? Well, I think this is the presentation that we see in a lot of adults in their 30s, especially the guys. And what the social worker focused in on was that moodiness when he's being asked by three different bosses to do a task right away. And he feels overwhelmed and he gets angry and he loses his temper. 
but temper loss or that mood dysregulation is not bipolar disorder. If you really wanted to rule out bipolar, you'd want to ask about periods of bad depression, sad, unhappy, can't take a shower, can't get out of bed, not sleeping, alternating with periods of mania where he was happy, silly, on top of the world, dating five different people and having sex with all of them, talking 100 miles an hour, not being able to be interrupted, that sort of classic manic picture. We're not seeing that, but we're certainly seeing in this presentation signs and symptoms of long difficulties with restlessness, not being able to sit still, not being able to finish things, inattention, poor school performance. He's giving us a lot of symptoms of ADHD. You have to look beyond that mood dysregulation and focus in on the other key symptoms. So, Doris, what, you know, she talked about mood dysregulation. What does this whole issue of mood dysregulation mean exactly? I think people have a short fuse with this. They're more volatile. Uh, they go before they think. They say before they think it out. And I think that's been his problem where he mouths off before he thinks about what he's saying. And then he thinks to himself, oh, I'm in trouble now. Uh, and by that time, he's lost his job. And if I could just return, you know, it's, it's always great having somebody who does both a lot of clinical and research in ADHD and in, with mood disorders. Just briefly, how do you really separate bipolar from just mood dysregulation of ADHD? That social worker is wondering, how do you do that? I think you really want to look at the cardinal symptoms. And, and Barbara Geller and her work really sort of compared ADHD and bipolar disorder. And she talked about several classic symptoms, so racing thoughts, grandiosity, decreased need for sleep, hypersexuality. Those are the classic symptoms that really distinguish. Not being able to sit still, people with bipolar disorder and ADHD have that difficulty. So that's not the one you want to hang your hat on. And I would also say, you know, that the, you know, one thing is frustration and irritability that may go with ADHD. Another is the severe manic mood symptomatology, mixed symptomatology that may go, that may come. You know, we are talking about overlap and different differential diagnosis. It also brings to light, Doris, the whole issue of comorbidity or co-occurring psychiatric disorders and other things with ADHD. Can you, can you help yeah, us I understand this better? Squeaky clean ADHD doesn't occur very often in, in the adults. Mm -hmm. They usually come in with other branches on the tree. Uh, by, certainly depression and anxiety are biggies, but also uh, social phobia, substance abuse where people are self-medicating, post-traumatic stress, and bipolar disorder, but primarily anxiety and depression, I think, are the biggie right here. You know, I want to go back. So we've talked a little bit about comorbidity. So now we're going to have to shift a little bit into really understanding how to assess. So I want to move on to assessment. Adelaide, can you walk us through the assessment process in adults with ADHD? Absolutely. I think one of the most important things is to get that background life history, whether you've got a parent that can give you information or teachers or school records, especially for our college students, for instance. You want to use a self-report scale, and I know we're going to talk about that later this afternoon. You want to get a mental status exam to look for other signs and symptoms of comorbidity. Do they have anxiety symptoms? Do they have mood symptoms? And some kind of a rating scale to look at both ADHD-specific things and also the broader stuff. If you're thinking about using medication, you want to make sure there aren't any contraindications, so asking about cardiac and neurologic medical history, checking a pulse and a blood pressure, and if those things are all normal, you really don't need to do a laboratory workup to start treatment. 
but you also want to assess for comorbidity, whether you do that through questions or a questionnaire to make sure you're not missing in your ADHD patient um, anxiety disorder or substance use problem. So two quick questions. One, do you have to get brain scans? Absolutely not. And number two, neuropsychological testing. I think you do not need to do neuropsychological testing. If I've got a college student and we're wanting to know about accommodations for the classroom or extra help, you may want to do that to see if there is a comorbid learning disability. Especially in younger people, they may have difficulty with reading, they may have difficulty with math. And if you know about that, that won't change your medication treatment, but it may change your educational interventions. So we talked about the importance of getting an early and accurate diagnosis. Let's talk about screening. We are all busy clinicians. So let me first ask our audience, who are clinicians in the trenches, how often do you estimate you use screening tools to assist in the diagnosis of ADHD? So we're asking you to be really candid about it. How often are you using these in instruments to screen? A, approximately 10%, B, approximately 50%, C, approximately 75%, or D, approximately 90%? Please vote now. Doris, while we're waiting for the answers, can you tell us about the scales that you think can help clinicians in the diagnosis of ADHD in adults, and how do you actually use them in clinical practice? Well, being in clinical practice, it's always good to have things that are free. I like free growth charts, I like free rating scales, and if you go to WHO ADHD, you can download uh, questionnaires that actually ask the various symptoms of ADHD, and you don't have to pay for them, so you are more likely to use them when you don't have to run up a big bill. I always encourage people to get new ones if symptoms reemerge after they've been on treatment, and you can fire those off whenever they're necessary. So, Adelaide, and and what what do you do in terms of you know this types of screen? Do you use any particular one? Do you use screens? Do you how, how do you work? in your I, practice? I use screens a lot and where I find it especially helpful is when I have them come in for the initial assessment I get a baseline level of symptoms and then if we're starting treatment and I know they scored the maximum score on being unable to sit through long meetings and interrupting people when they're talking and maybe another couple of symptoms when they come back I don't have to do the whole screener I can again I can say well, I know last time you told me you were really struggling with interrupting people when they're talking to you. How are you doing with that over the last couple of weeks? So that I can track their target symptoms that we pulled off that bigger list and use those in the medical record as a reminder when the patients come in to see how things are going. Um, could, I, could, could I just um, ask you, in telepsychiatry, we're moving to telepsychiatry, are either of you using any kind of telepsychiatry, you know, electronic internet connections for screening? Not specifically for screening, although I certainly have patients that I will PDF the, the scoring sheets to and send over and then they'll send them back to me. When I have people that we have telepsychiatry with, it's usually for an initial assessment with some of our remote satellites, and then we're doing a standard interview rather than a, a forum. Um, I want to come back to our audience response, and turns out that 53% chose A, 10%, 13% chose B, 8% chose C, and 16% chose D. So what do you think about that? Well, I think you include a lot of those symptoms when you're taking a decent history so that 
you may not use screening. You may do the screening yourself by asking a good history. Uh, and there's so many screens out there, and people lose them. ADHD patients don't keep track of them. We send them to them, and they don't show up in the office with them. So you have to take it with a grain of salt. They aren't always helpful. You know, shifting a little bit, Adelaide, we talked about how ADHD may impact the lives of our adult patients. But what are some of the real consequences that these patients have to face? Well, Dr. Biederman and his group have looked at this quite a bit, and we sort of think about difficulties in all aspects of their life. So people with ADHD are more likely to drop out of high school or not finish college. They're more likely to use drugs and alcohol and drinking. They have difficulty keeping jobs, and they're more likely to have been divorced and even to be arrested. We asked our patient leaders a similar question about what areas they felt personally had the most impairment, and let's hear what they had to say. I think that the thing that people find most Im impairing that I've talked to is their occupational functioning, their ability to self-regulate at work, to not lose their temper easily. I would say all of the above. I know it definitely has had a toll on me in the um, workplace department. It seems like when I would get assignments for certain things and I was in the site business myself uh, and I have lots of different projects that I had to do, I would get very, very overwhelmed having to do all the paperwork. Paperwork has always been a very big challenge for me. Uh, mostly the problems are with school and work. So, you know, I think that this is really compelling. I'm interested in what your own patients have to say. One thing I want to comment on is when you hear over and over about my sense is the occupational impact of this, you're talking about real occupational impact, right, in terms of actual dollars? Yes. If we look at some of the studies that have been done, blue-collar workers with ADHD make about $10,000 less per year than their non-ADHD peers. And if we're talking about white-collar workers, the difference in salary is $40,000. So it's huge. And Doris, is what you heard by the, uh, our... Um, patient expert. Is that, what, is that what you're hearing in clinic? Yes, I'm hearing that. And also you have to realize that work for kids is school. And work for adults is the employment area or being at home trying to mother a family. So yes, those are the biggest areas of impairment that I hear. And I would say that one of the most rewarding parts of working with ADHD is actually appreciating that if you can help treat ADHD, which we'll get to, it actually improves some of these occupational considerations, and we'll talk about that soon. Let's translate this to clinical practice again with a case. Here's Ms. Henderson. She's 23 years old, referred by her family physician. Hi, doctor, is this the right appointment time? I lost the card that Dr. Burns gave me. Dr. Burns is our family's doctor. I've seen him for years. My mom asked me to see him because I've been kind of down on myself, and she saw that I've been drinking a lot more than I usually do. And Dr. Burns asked me to come see you. I am in Monroe Community College, and I'm not doing well. I'm failing two classes, and I don't think I'm going to make it through the year. I've never done well in school. My teachers always said I had learning problems, or I didn't take school seriously. That's not true. I would just get sidetracked and struggling, concentrating, and keeping up with the other kids. I've stopped hanging out with my friends. 
not only because they're passing and I'm not, but I'm also embarrassed because my driver's license is suspended and I have to take public transportation. Yes, I could ask them for a ride, but they're happy and succeeding and I'm failing. Funny, I don't feel like I'm stupid. I just don't know how to show that I'm not. Adelaide, this wonderful uh, case opens up the whole issue of college students with ADHD. Do you want to comment on that? Yeah, I, I think everybody worries that when a college student comes into your office saying, I think I have ADHD, they're just trying to get treatment so they can do better on exams. She gives us the classic presentation, which is her life is in crisis in many places. She's lost her driver's license. She's being left behind by her friends. She's failing all our college classes. It's not the difference between an A and a B. She's really failing. And she struggled all along, but has been a, a good person. And so she didn't get treatment in middle school or high school. And now she really needs your help. And I think what's so gratifying for people this age is you can make that diagnosis. You can get her on treatment. And you can turn her trajectory around. You can get her back on track. Yeah. I. Uh, Dora said it and I at the same time it does change the trajectory and I think that's actually a, a very important message you take somebody who's failing and struggling and suffering and you change that that's she's, she's probably been very well behaved all these years her teachers weren't concerned because she was nice yep. she learned how to bat her eyes at the teacher and the teachers passed her but now she's under the gun in school nobody's making special accommodations her life's falling apart it's a wonderful way to see improvement once you've started treatment. You know, she did bring up a, a area that I really worry about, and that is driving. And I was wondering, you know, how, how often or common are driving problems with ADHD? They're really common. There's been some data from the National Highway Safety, Safety Administration looking at all aspects of ADHD and driving. People are more likely to have car accidents two to four times as much injuries in those accidents, broken legs, concussions, they're usually at fault and they often get speeding tickets and even have their licenses suspended. So it's really a struggle across the board with driving and when I'm talking with my young adult patients I say if you're going to be driving a car you need to be on treatment. I think that's really important and I also would comment that um, the uh, although the cart is a little bit before the horse on treatment the issue around treatment showing improvements in driving, both in driving simulation and in actual naturalistic studies, Cox and all, have done a number of studies, as is Barclay and others, that you really want to be treated while you're driving. And I think that becomes yeah, a really resonates message. with fathers, too, to bring them in before a child begins to drive and to explain that the driving accidents are very serious and that giving the medicine will keep them in the low-risk pool of so, insurance. And it continues all the way through adulthood. So we've talked a lot about, Doris, um, diagnosis and assessment and comorbidities. What can we do to help our patients in terms of treatment plan? I mean, how do we, what do we think of when we think about a, sort of a comprehensive treatment plan for our adults? I think the very first thing you need to do is to demystify this. This is not voodoo medicine. There is a, a neurologic basis of this, and we teach the families and the patients about it so they invest themselves in the treatment. First and foremost, they have to believe that what you're going to do is that you're going to include them as part of the team. Also, I, 
we want very much to make sure that if they are going to be treated, we follow them longitudinally so that they establish baseline with you and can track their progress. We're going to now move to what could be sort of a controversial area, and that is we're, I'm going to go back to the audience and pull you a bit. And that, the question to you is, in what percentage of new adult patients with ADHD do you recommend pharmacotherapy as first-line treatment? Is it A, approximately 25%, B, approximately 50%, C, approximately 75%, or D, approximately 90%? Please vote now. While we're waiting for our audience response, let's hear how our patient leaders answered this specific question. It's been my experience that medication is always used. Behavior modification is usually not used in this community. Usually medication is always, I would say, 95% of the time prescribed. Medication, number one, two, and three. I sometimes they recommend also coaching, sometimes therapy, but across the board, it's medication. And often there's nothing else attached to it. In fact, I've heard adults say that they were told that something like coaching really isn't necessary, that the medication will take care of it, which is wrong. So while we still wait for our final answers to come in, I'm just interested in your observations of what you heard from our uh, patient experts there in terms of always to the role, you know, always starting with that, et cetera. What, is that what you're hearing in the field? I think it is, and I think the other issue is that that's where most of the evidence is behind medication treatment. And depending on where you live in the country, other things like cognitive behavioral therapy and coaching may or may not be available and may or may not be covered by your insurance. So it's interesting that uh, when we got the received the um, feedback from our participants who are listening, it's pretty even across the board, basically. 29% said about 25% of the time, 19% about 50% of the time, 27 said approximately 75% of the time, and 25% said about 90%. So pretty, pretty evenly, you know, split. What's your sense of that, Doris? I think people are still under the impression that using medication is somehow a touchy-feely solution for this, uh, and there's a lot of defensiveness about prescribing medication. Medication has a wonderful effect for people who are properly diagnosed, and it, it's concerning to me that it's not offered as often as I would think. Uh, and I think this, this talk today, perhaps, might convince some of you who are reluctant to consider medication as first line, uh, that it is not something you have to defend as something you're afraid of. Is that what you think, Adelaide? I, I do. I think the other thing is that unlike ADHD for kids where we have both pediatric and child psychiatry guidelines in the United States, the American Psychiatric Association doesn't have a practice parameter or guidelines on the treatment of ADHD. We'd have to go to England and the NICE guidelines to get that. And they actually say for adults, people 16 and older in the UK, medication is first-line treatment. So now that you've sort of introduced this, I was wondering if you could uh, review some of the basic principles of treatment that cl clinicians need to consider in new diagnosis of ADHD in adults. So first, you really do need to make the diagnosis. You've done your history and your medical history and gotten vital signs and everything. First-line treatment is medication, 
and you have options that are FDA approved in adults including the stimulants, methylphenidate and amphetamine, non-stimulants, things like atomoxetine, and then the alpha agonists which are approved in kids only. And then there are other sort of third line treatments which include antidepressants and some of the things like modafinil. Cognitive behavioral therapy has been tested in adults but as an add-on to people already on medication and then things like working with coaches and organizational skills helps as well. So let me clarify something. It's, it, people always wonder, do you start with cognitive behavioral therapy? Do you start with medication? Do you use the combination? Are there, first of all, are there guidelines on what you do or what do you do? In the United States, there really aren't guidelines. There are only those ones from England. And I think I always start with medication. And I say that because, especially with the stimulants, we're going to have an answer in a few weeks at the right dose. Is this working for your patient or not? Once their attention and concentration are under better control, then they can do the work they need to do if they want to go to therapy or if they want to work with the coach on specific job-related issues. But I always think everybody deserves a good trial of medication. So um, I think that you've mentioned a number of different medications. You've talked to the stimulant class, atomoxetine, uh, other uh, tricyclic antidepressants, bupropion, modafinil, which are off-label medications. People get confused. What's on-label, what's off-label? Could you walk us through that? Absolutely, and this slide really summarizes it. There are five medications that are FDA-approved in adults, and that's mixed amphetamine salt-controlled release, Listex amphetamine. Both of those are the amphetamine products. They last about 12 hours. Methylphenidate products are orosmethylphenidate and dexmethylphenidate-controlled release, lasting between 10 and 12 and then the non-stimulant atomoxetine, which is 8 to 24 hours. What's nice about these, if you go to the label, is they have specific recommendations for adults starting and maximum dose. So we commented a bit about um, occupation earlier. I think there was a lot of the polls, people were commenting that occupation is really um, impaired in ADHD. We noticed that ourselves and our own patients. Uh, talked a little bit about the level of impairment that you get from a monetary standpoint. What kind of information do we have that medication treatment actually improves work in ADHD in adults? Well, this study right here by uh, Sharon, I think it's Sharon Weigel. Yeah, Tim and yeah. Sharon, yep, the Weigels from uh, Showed from that there was a, definitely an improvement, as you see in the bar graph, uh, over time with medication. And... Uh, Success is very reinforcing. So we have, this is, it, what's interesting about this study is that they've actually developed workplace simulated environments now to actually uh, examine effects of treatments on ADHD. And here you can see that placebo didn't do very well, but you have a, a pretty substantial effect with the stimulant medication. Is that what you see in your clinical practice? Are you actually seeing improvements in occupational Yes, function? and you need to tell human resources if you're on an amphetamine that that will come out in urine testing if they are tested on the job so that they won't be accused of drug abuse. Interesting. And how about methylphenidate? Does that? It doesn't usually come out in the urine. So it's nice just to tell human resources if you're on any kind of medication just in case the sensitivity of the test changes. You know, you bring up a real interesting point, and that is toxicology testing and that that just opens up the whole issue of stimulant misuse and diversion. And 
Adelaide, I was, you know, one of the most common questions I think that's asked is, what about the risk for stimulant misuse and diversion, and what are some things clinicians should keep in mind about this? There have been a couple of different meta-analysis and review studies, one of which you did, and they looked at mostly college students and looked at the rate of diversion and misuse. And so sometimes what happens is college students will borrow their friend's medication for exam time and use that to see how they can stay up and study longer. Many times that brings people into my office because they realize they really do have untreated ADHD and they need help. The other issue that comes up are the people who don't take their medication as directed and may only take it on certain days. And I can see that when people don't show up in 30 days for their refill. I think using your electronic medical record can help you keep track of prescription fills to look and see if somebody is refilling too quickly because they keep losing their prescription or not refilling as needed and you may want to have a discussion about adherence with your patient. So you brought up a little bit about monitoring from your own prescription renewals, etc. cetera. Uh, Follow-up question to that, what do you say to people about lost prescriptions or, you know, an adult who, who do, do, you know, who says, oh, I'm so sorry, I, I, I lost my new bottle of whatever stimulant? I will usually say I'm going to let you lose it once because they do have ADHD and sometimes they can't even find their car keys even though they're sitting on the counter. So I, I give them once, but if it becomes a pattern, if I see that every third fill they've lost their prescription, we have a discussion about what's really going on and we think about trying a different kind of medication. Is that a similar yes, strategy? Yes, and if, if they are in college and their medicine is stolen and they oftentimes leave it out and people will check the medicine cabinets to see what's in there when they come visiting, make a police report because if someone else is found with the bottle, then they can claim that this student sold it to them. Also, uh, we give them one, one failure, and after that, we are suspicious. A couple of other points that sort of have emerged from the literature, uh, Tom Spencer and our group and others have uh, helped on this one, is that extended-release stimulants appear to have lo lower abuse liability. We recently had a paper that uh, is just accepted and have presented these data showing that people who misuse stimulants tend to misuse the immediate release, not the extended release, and we're really strongly recommending in any high-risk population that people use the extended release medicine, especially as Adelaide pointed out, they're FDA approved in this population anyway. Another thing I wonder is many states have prescription monitoring programs now. Do, I don't know if your states do, but is, is that something that has you've found particularly helpful? I, you know, we examine it, it's hit or miss for us. I think the physician should keep track of when they're writing the prescriptions. Every time they write one, put it in the chart. Mm -hmm. whether we get the monitoring or not is immaterial. And I think one of the things in, in D.C. where I work, we do have annual renewals of stimulants where you have to actually talk to the insurance company, tell them why they're on the medication before they're even allowed to go and get it filled. So again, I think that makes us more aware of when we are using these medications and are we using them correctly. You know, we've talked about everything from diagnosis to treatment, but one of the biggest issues we run into is you can do everything right, and our data are showing that 80% of people won't be taking their medication one year out. Adherence is a huge issue and engaging patients. So it's kind of a general question to both of you. What are some practical tools that you use to engage patients in their care? Adelaide, why don't we start with you? 
I think one of the things is to really focus in on those places of impairment and the target symptoms so that we can say, all right, our goal is to help you bring your grades up and get off of academic probation. Part of that means taking your medication. When people come to my office, we try and use electronic reminders. There are great apps for your different smartphones that you can download. And I also talk about how often are you forgetting to take your medication? When does that happen? And try and problem solve around that. Like maybe it's on the weekends when they're sleeping in late and they're not taking classes on Saturday and Sunday and then they forget and they get into all kinds of trouble at parties on campus because they're not taking their medication. So we try and work a routine out. Most people remember to brush their teeth every day. They should be able to remember to take their medicine every day. And yeah, there are apps, as you said. I just recently learned of one called Mango Health that you can download and it will tell you to take your medicine, give you points for it, you work towards rewards and it will tell you when to refill your prescriptions, which is kind of neat. I think it's also important sometimes for a late high school student or college student to have someone else remind them. Uh, boyfriend or girlfriend might be a help. And people will say, well, I don't take my medicine when I want to drink, uh, which is something we talk about. And I think that it's very important to ask how they feel about the medication, uh, whether or not there are some downsides to taking it. People will say to me they feel a little bit more uh, withdrawn when they're not on their, when they're on their medicine so they don't want to take it when they're socializing and we try to find a happy medium sometimes using a smaller dose on the weekends so they're a little bit more outgoing and a little bit more aggressive in sports and things and a larger dose during the week. You know um, this we were talking about sort of working with these patients it sometimes it helps to take a team what are you know what do you see the role of other people in your treatment you know uh, your your facility the nursing uh, nurse practitioners, uh, others, to help engage patients in the care of their ADHD? I don't just see people in our office, but families, kids in the family, spouses in the family, um, they, co-workers who can help keep people on track. They'll say, you haven't been taking your medicine lately and you're having a lot more problems at work, you need to go back and see your doctor. So it isn't just the people in the medical office. I think the people, and I absolutely agree, I, one thing I've learned is that the people in the medical office often are talking a lot with the adults, you know, they're, a lot of them will see the nurse practitioner in the office, for example, and, and they really care about what, what they're saying to them about the need for standardized treatment, the need to be on your treatment, the need to, you know, be mindful of your symptoms, and like you said, side effects, being on top of side effects. And I think, I think even bosses, especially if you're in sports or any kind of job where you're getting regular performance reviews, one of the things I sort of check on because we're not in a simulated workplace environment, we're in a real workplace environment, is how have you been doing with your boss? Have they been noticing differences in your performance? Have they complimented you? How was your last performance review? How are things going? And you'll find that they're showing up on time for work now. They're getting that horrible paperwork done. Their boss is pleased they've had a compliment, which they've never had in their job before. And that's how I know we're moving in the right direction. And emphasizing those positive changes, because they do have to take a pill every day, and they do have to deal with side effects. And it's the trade-off between that and having things in their life be better that makes remembering to take the medicine worthwhile. And I think that's important that we're talking about the issue of taking care of people that 
you, you, you're monitoring what they're doing. They may need to have a coach. They may need some cognitive behavioral therapy. They may need some, some family work. Their kids may need to be treated. And I think all of that becomes really critical in taking care of the whole patient. That's really that patient-centered approach. Um, and I also think it shows us, sort of as you said, the reward of taking care of this group because they really get better. Adults yes. with ADHD get better when you're treating them. It's like bloodless surgery. You don't cut anything, but you make the patient better, and yeah. it's really very satisfying. Before we close this portion of our broadcast, I want to ask our audience one final question to find out what topic they want to hear us address in more depth next time. You will see the question on your screen. Which area do you feel you need further education related to adults with ADHD? Is it A, screening adults, B, evaluating adults for symptoms comorbid with other disorders, C, how to implement a personalized treatment plan, or D, how to individualize pharmacotherapy for adult patients with ADHD? Please vote now. So Doris, I was wondering, could you please review our key points or clinical connections that apply in treating adults with ADHD? Absolutely. Attention disorder doesn't go away. It's a lifetime disorder. It's undiagnosed in a lot of people. It takes a long time to find it and definitely undertreated, unlike the media tries to convey. It's not an overtreated diagnosis. I think involvement of the patient is vital if you're going to have any longitudinal success and Assessing for other things besides ADHD, thinking outside the box is important so that you initiate treatment after careful consideration of everything. Adelaide, what, what other things would you add to that? I want to remind people about the age of onset and the fewer number of symptoms needed to make that diagnosis in our adult patients, that we're more likely to see people with a lot of inattentive symptoms and fewer hyperactive impulsive ones in adulthood that there are a variety of treatment options that can be fine-tuned to meet your patient's needs, especially because adults' lives are more than eight hours long, and that psychosocial interventions can be very important for maximizing or optimizing treatment, that we have both stimulants and non-stimulants that are FDA-approved in adults and that have been shown to be effective in the, and safe in the treatment of adults, and that management requires ongoing assessment an intervention. As somebody's job changes or the requirements change at work or now they have a new baby at home and that adds a whole mix in, you need to reassess and make sure you're optimizing the patient's treatment. Well, I want to thank you both for those points. I think they're really important and these treatment decisions require a truly personalized approach. I want to encourage everyone to stay with us for our after the show segment where we will take your questions and cases. And I know a number of questions have already come in. You can call, email, or fax us with your questions or comments by calling 1-800-322-3487 or faxing your questions to 614-448-4476 or you can email us at questions at cmeoutfitters.com. We will also be monitoring the Twitter feed at hashtag AdultADHD. So you can tweet your questions as well. Welcome back. I'm Dr. Tim Willens, and here I'm with Dr. Doris Greenberg and Dr. Adelaide Robb. 
and we're going to jump right in with your questions. And I have to tell you, there are a lot of questions, and I already apologize in advance that we're not going to be able to get to all of them, but they're really phenomenal. So I'm going to start with uh, one of the questions is, what about senior adults, okay? I'm gently treading on that territory. Um, do you diagnose ADHD in that group, um, and how do you measure it, and how do you treat it? Senior adults have senior moments, but senior adults with ADHD have more senior moments. And I think they deserve treatment uh, just like the younger patients do. If they don't have cardiovascular disease that stands in the way, or hypertension, for example, uh, I see no reason why we shouldn't be treating. Had a man who had ADHD for years, was like Mr. Magoo, had his income tax in his car for a year, got fined, a huge fine, because he forgot to mail it. And uh, treating him was very good for his family dynamics. And kind of along those lines, are, are, are there data that would make us think that these medicines may cause dementia in adults? There's no data showing that they cause dementia, but really when I am talking to people over 65 who are coming in with, I've been fine all my life, I've got a law degree, and now all of a sudden I can't focus and pay attention, I may want to broaden the spectrum in what I'm looking for. So I really want a lifelong history, or at least an adult-long history of ADHD symptoms before I pull out a prescription pad to write for an ADHD medicine in a 67-year-old. Another question that came up was somebody who requires two controlled substances. So you have somebody who has a lot of anxiety, who uh, may require a benzodiazepine and, let's say, an amphetamine. Would you use that in somebody with... Uh comorbid condition? Absolutely. I've got a patient that gets panic attacks on the airplane. He's got ADHD. I'm treating him with a stimulant when he has to for work, make plane trips. He's terrified. He takes alprazolam before the plane and again if the plane rides longer mid-flight and the rest of the time he's not on that benzodiazepine. But I think I keep track of both of those controlled substance prescriptions. He's been instructed on how to use them and I think that's completely safe. Yeah. So we're going to now take a uh, question uh, that's coming to us uh, live from Dr. William Drucker. Hi. Um, for a long time, I've always thought that people with major depressive disorder have a much greater rate, or at least twice the rate, of getting ADHD compared to the general population rate of getting the ADHD. And one, I wonder if that's true. And two, is there any reason? I think of these as both of them heavily weighed genetically, and yet two different conditions seem to have a, a, a connection, any sense on what's going on in both of these areas. Well, I think that's a very intriguing you know, I think that's a very important point, and it's something that we touched on a bit in terms of that overlap between depression and ADHD. And I was wondering, Adelaide, you had commented a little bit before about that, but are people with depression, do they have higher rates of ADHD than the general population? They actually do, but you always want to be careful because difficulty concentrating and remembering is a cardinal symptom of major depression, and what you're really looking for in your depressed patient is if the depression is treated and their mood is back to normal, their sleep's back to normal, their energy level's back to normal, if they're still struggling with focus and attention and restlessness, you want to then go back and think about ADHD. And again, get that good childhood history. I think as adult psychiatrists, we sometimes forget 
to ask about symptoms earlier in life, and that would tip us off to that background ADHD diagnosis that's been missed or not the primary focus of our treatment attention. And that the rate, is, uh, as uh, you were saying, is sometimes four to five times greater rates of ADHD with major depression in adulthood, and that's epidemiologic data and clinical data. So helpful to remember that if you were, see a lot of adults with depression, one out of four, one out of five are probably going to also have ADHD. Um, we're coming to another, another common question that comes up is, what's the role of meditation or mindfulness for ADHD? I think that meditation and mindfulness are helpful to get your patient to sort of focus in on the tasks for the day. And for many of my adults with ADHD, they need that quiet space to get themselves organized before they're stuck in the middle of their tasks and they don't know how to prioritize what to get done first. And I think it's very helpful. If patients are willing to do that, it really does help them organize and plan out their day, which is very important when the disorder tends to lead to poor organizational skills and not getting tasks prioritized and done. I think it all depends on the uh, mindset of the patient as well. Some of my patients wouldn't do it at all. Some are very into it and very glad to do it, and I think it has to fit each patient. Uh, we had a few questions that really beg to the issue of, so you have a patient with ADHD, relatively clean ADHD. I'm going to make it a little bit simpler initially. They have ADHD. Where do you start? What medicine do you choose? How do you do it? I think for my adult patients, because there's a larger body of evidence for the stimulants, I pick a stimulant, either a methylphenidate product or an amphetamine product. And part of that may also depend on their insurance or previous treatment. If I've got somebody that in elementary school did great on methylphenidate, they're now coming to me in graduate school. They've been off meds for 15 years. They want to know where to start. I said, well, we know you are a methylphenidate responder. Let's go back and do that again and see how you do. Now, some people, I, I don't mean to, but some people say, do you start with an extended release or the immediate release? Which one do you start with? How do you choose? For adults, I would certainly start with an extended release. The fewer doses per day, the better the adherence. And also, if there's a member of the family who's being treated with a medication and it's successful, I would choose that class of medication first since they're first-degree relatives, if they're a child, for example. And if they have somebody in the family who had a terrible experience with one of the classes of medication, I certainly wouldn't start with that. So what do you do then if you, let's say you've given somebody an extended release preparation of medication, they have a 16-hour day instead of a 8- or 10-hour day, how do you cover if they say, hey, it works great, doc, you're covering me till you know, 3 o'clock or so, it's wearing off. How do you... What do you do? Sometimes you need to use a short-acting, immediate-release uh, form of medication. Uh, I try to use those that are generic so I can reduce the cost per month. And sometimes you have to use even two extra doses, uh, especially if they're driving late at night. What I'll do also sometimes is split the dose. So let's say that they're taking 40 milligrams of a long-acting amphetamine product. I'll have them take maybe 30 in the morning to get the day started and then 10 around noon, 1, 2 o'clock, and that will get them through the end of their day while they still have some on board from earlier in the morning. And I found that to be just as successful. I can use the same product. I don't have to write for a short-acting drug. And, they, and some people even refer to that as sculpted dosing. Yeah. 
That may be very much more expensive, though. The long-acting forms tend to be more expensive, and getting insurance companies to buy that is, is tough. Mm -hmm. um, there are questions, you know, we, we kind of jumped right into, you know, uh, treating the typical patient with ADHD. I want to back up a second because we had a couple of questions on this. What about those patients that come in, again, no major medical comorbidity, but you're screening them cardiovascularly? What do you do? Do you do EKGs? Do you do echoes? Do you do EKGs? What kind of workups do you do on them? It depends on what they gave you in their medical history. So if they have a family history of cardiac arrhythmias and early sudden deaths in the 30s, I'm going to get an EKG on that person. If everybody in the family lives to 100, nobody has high blood pressure, the patient's never had any heart symptoms, I'm going to get their vital signs, but they don't need an EKG, they don't need a halter, and they don't need an echo. They also don't need a brain scan. <laughs> <laughs> um, what, a question that comes, comes up here, and we actually heard it in our patient vignettes and, and reference there is, comorbidity with ADHD and one of them that we really didn't talk much about is ADHD and anxiety in an adult so how do you differentiate that you know we heard anxious depression and we talked about the depression but what about the anxiety component of that many people who have adult ADHD have a comorbid anxiety disorder depending on the study you look at it's anywhere from 30 to 50 percent if you don't ask about anxiety in your ADHD patients you miss it and so one of the things I always ask people is not do you worry, but what do you worry about? And if I start to get a laundry list about social situations and my work performance and everything, I explore that more. And we know that actually the non-stimulant, atomoxetine, has actually been studied in adults with ADHD and comorbid anxiety. So that may alter my first pick for treatment a little bit where I will go to that first because there's actually a study looking at adults with ADHD and comorbid anxiety. Try that first. The other big one that we saw on the slide that Dr. Greenberg talked about in the previous part of the program was social anxiety disorder. And if you think about ADHD as doing terribly at your job every day as you march through school and into the workforce, of course you're going to be anxious in social situations because you've always felt like you were a failure at work. And that's just really tough. And so there may be the need then in those patients to do some either therapy or think about treating that social anxiety disorder to help improve that part of the functioning beyond treating the ADHD symptoms. Yeah, I think for years they felt unsuccessful. And that has been a pattern of their lives. So anxiety, anxious symptoms, lots of aches and pains, as I've heard, anxiety being a midline disorder where you get headaches and stomach aches and palpitations and problems with your swallowing, etc. cetera. Uh, I think it comes because of the fact that you've suffered for many years. We, we have, speaking of that whole area of the overlap, another overlap area that we received a number of questions on is the whole issue of substance use and ADHD. So in terms of worrying about patients who come in who come in with ADHD, do you screen for substance use? Um, what do you do if you think they have substance abuse? What happens if you have a predominantly substance using individual? I'm just wondering what you have your, your thoughts are on that. Do you, do you, you know, um, are you screening for substance use? Are you worried that you're getting faked or duped you know, into giving stimulants to somebody? Well, I think you have to 
think dirty. I think you always have to think that there might be someone who's self-medicating or a substance abuser. There are lots of reasons why people don't concentrate. And I think if I ask a patient, would there be something to con be concerned about if we got a drug screen today, most of them will tell you, yeah, that <laughs> will not be good. Uh, I really do think, though, that you have to think of all the possibilities of what's making a patient not concentrate. And that is one big area. A lot of our college students use substances at college, and they will take their, themselves off their medications so they can use them. So they can uh, use. Or they'll just tell me they smoke marijuana because they feel relaxed for the first time. Adelaide, how do you manage that? I mean, if you have a college student who may be drinking or smoking marijuana and is on and are on stimulants, do you have a threshold? You say, I'm not going to give you stimulants. I'm not going to. I mean, how do you, how do you balance that one? And that's always tough, especially if you live in certain states in the country where it's okay to be using marijuana because the legislation said it was. I think that substance use is a high comorbidity. I think in my college students, I see more alcohol abuse than I see anything except for maybe marijuana. And I have a discussion about drug-drug interactions and that it may not be the safest thing in the world to get a blood alcohol level of 0.2 on top of your daily stimulant and that while it's okay to have something to drink, you don't want to do it to excess, you may be more likely to become intoxicated or poorly intoxicated, and that especially when you're using street drugs, there's no quality control, and you don't know that there's PCP in with your marijuana from the local dealer, and you may wind up in the emergency room. The other place where we sometimes run into trouble are the college students who do those energy drinks that have hundreds of milligrams of caffeine in them mm -hmm. on top of their stimulant to have more energy and study better. And I've had a couple kids actually go to the emergency room with a too rapid heartbeat because they had five of those caffeine drinks on top of their daily as prescribed stimulant dose. And that's just not good. So I say if you want some caffeine, have a cup of coffee or a Coca-Cola, you do not need to drink those yeah, energy you, drinks. You've actually had a patient who became psychotic on energy drinks. And I always tell them also that alcohol and marijuana actually turn off your frontal lobe after you've been drinking or smoking. And we're trying to turn it on with the stimulant. So you're waging a battle in there. And it's an interesting one because um, some of the data would indicate that if you're starting with ADHD and you don't treat ADHD, you can have up to half of your population having substance use. If you're continuously treating ADHD, that reduces that likelihood substantially for both cigarette smoking and for um, using any uh, drugs or alcohol. Um, conversely, if you start with substance users, recent work from uh, the European Union, Van Emmerich et al., showed that almost a quarter of adults who have an addiction have ADHD. So it's a common overlap, and it's, and it's tough. I think if there's a lot of addiction, I agree you're going to have to address that addiction because your ADHD treatment isn't going to be able to peek through the addiction. Um, if it's intermittent addiction and intermittent use, it's a case-by-case case on sort of how do you manage it. You, you brought in a whole issue, though, of sort of these nutraceutical products. What do we know about nutraceutical products for ADHD in adults? Is there, are there studies? Do they work? There have been a couple of studies, I think, actually, in kids looking at the omega-3 things, and there's really not a big difference, although there's actually an omega-3 that's on the market that I keep getting asked by parents about <laughs> for ADHD treatment. I think those are fine for cardiovascular health. I don't think they're going to treat your ADHD. And if I've got somebody with ADHD who wants, in part, a natural approach, I do let them know that exercise is beneficial. 
and there have been plenty of studies in kids that show if you go out and get good physical exercise and then sit down to study, you can actually focus better whether you're on your medication or not. So if they want to do something that's natural, I tell them to go do some cardiovascular. Um, there's, it, it's, it, uh, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I tell people that stimulants get you to make your own natural dopamine and norepinephrine. That's as natural as you can get. You can't feed it to somebody because of stomach acid breaking it down, but we're duplicating what it's like when those patients are playing video games and doing things that they love, they're generating more. So all we're doing is generating more just like they do naturally. So when they start bringing up, I want a natural treatment, I said, this is as natural as it gets. We're duplicating the physiology in your brain when you're doing something that's pleasurable for you. Well, it's interesting you say that, Doris, because in fact, the medicines, like you say, work by their real indirect acting sympathomimetic amines. They work right. using the natural neurotransmission systems right. to make more dopamine or norepinephrine available in the brain. And they actually, the existing stimulants have similar backbones to the catecholamines in the brain, dopamine and norepinephrine. You know, kind of coming back to the, the nutraceuticals, um, it's interesting that uh, the, the, in children, like you were saying, the fish oils have a mild effect on ADHD in combination a little bit more, but still a mild effect. 0.3 effect size. There's a good meta-analysis by Block et al. That's a couple of years old in the American Academy of Child Psychiatry that really sort of highlights that. We've been studying it for mood dysregulation, what we talked right. about earlier, that dysregulation of mood in ADHD. Um, and, you know, we have the results have yet to be determined because it's an ongoing study, but we're using it not so much for ADHD core symptoms, but more for the mood component because there are data that would potentially show that the alpha, you know, the omega-3s, certain high EPA, DHAs mm -hmm. have some efficacy in that population. You know, I want to, um, there were a couple of questions asking us about longer-term outcomes in ADHD. So, you know, we're focusing on adults, but some of those data are children growing up into adults. So what do we know about long-term outcome data with, you know, with treatments of adult of ADHD? Well, my patients are now up to grandpatients and great-grandpatients. And I'll have to tell you that although there aren't a lot of studies that show long-term what happens, I can vouch for the fact that families come in regularly with their children after having been treated themselves for ADHD, growing up successfully, and as soon as they identify the symptoms, they want their child treated also. Um, the success rate is huge, and people who've been treated will attest to that. And when I have to explain the treatment to them, adherence in this group is amazing. Uh, they want their child treated. They're very positive about what it did for them. And so I would have to say that experience shows that it really does help long-term. But you have to keep engaging people, and you have to develop a long-term relationship with them. I think some of the best work actually comes from Dr. Biederman's group at Mass General, where he followed a group of young girls with ADHD and without and young boys with ADHD and without at five and ten years and I think you've even got 15-year data mm -hmm. now that really shows that people are at higher risk for comorbidities when they're untreated both psychiatric comorbidities, substance use comorbidities, poor health outcomes and poor occupational outcomes and we know from from the Biederman work and from other groups like Barclay that treatment alters that. I think the field of adult ADHD is still pretty new. So if you said if we took 2,000 college students across the United States and followed them prospectively, 
we still don't have that kind of data, but I think we do know treatment is effective and staying on treatment helps reduce a lot of bad psychosocial outcome. You know, um, some of the best work, as you were saying, we just don't have these large registry studies here, but they do in Sweden, and they have the Swedish registry study that I encourage everybody to take a look at. Um, Lichtenstein et al. in the New England Journal of Medicine uh, two years ago published a, a traumatic work following 25,000 ADHD young adults through the ages of risk for criminality, and what they found was that treated, half of the sample was treated, so 12,000 plus were treated and the other 12,000 weren't. They were similar at baseline, and what they found was striking differences in both boys going to be men and girls to females who developed criminality. They showed 30 to 40 percent drops in criminality. Much of that, not surprising, is drug-related, and we can say by extension, by proxy, that reductions in that. Uh, some of the secondary analysis by Zuidol showing during active treatment longer term in Sweden using that registry study reductions in automobile accidents in treated groups. So I don't think it's anything unexpected. It's kind of what we know about from the short-term data, but showing it longer term over five years during the ages of risk, you know, uh, the young adulthood where you see lots of these problems. And I think uh, there's a lot more to come from those studies. I haven't seen any studies yet that show any long-term health consequences of taking stimulants for many, many years. Well, you know, that's an interesting point, and it, it taps into the neurobiology and some of the concerns that we have with are there issues, are these neurotoxics? So we talked a little bit about it. They don't cause, they don't seem to predispose to Parkinson's, to dementia. Um, in terms of the structural changes in the brain, they don't cause uh, uh, neurotoxic effects. Um, and as they age, people age, there are some uh, reviews, uh, Tom Spencer did a review recently that showed some normalization in some of the structures associated with that we know are impaired by ADHD. So uh, again, it comforting that it's not causing uh, neurotoxic effects. We also know longer-term outcomes from large studies by Cooper et al. and Habel et al. looking at samples of individuals on uh, stimulants. Do they cause cardiovascular problems? And that does not seem to be the case. In fact, the odds ratios are on the other side. Now, I wouldn't say they're protective, but there's a, there's, it, it's hedging to that side. So I, don't, I wouldn't say that they protect the heart or anything, but what I would say is that at the, very, at the least we're so worried about that we monitor carefully. It doesn't seem to be uh, cardiotoxic, and I think that's very important. It doesn't mean we don't want to ask questions about screening and if people develop symptoms on medications and that there are going to be a few people. But as a whole, in this country, looking at a large database, um, there doesn't appear to be too many difficulties in that arena. And I would also say that there was another study that your group did looking at adults with hypertension and ADHD. And what they did is they had the hypertension under good control and then they judiciously treated the ADHD with stimulants and people were able to tolerate that and their blood pressure stayed the same. So I know that there are contraindications on the medication labels, but I think if you've got a grown-up with hypertension and ADHD, there's evidence in the literature that you can actually safely treat those two disorders together. I, I agree. Um, shifting again, we have a few questions about overlap. Another, again, comorbidity, no surprises coming up. Um, 
two common comorbid conditions that are coming up that people are asking about, trauma and post-traumatic stress and ADHD and borderline personality disorder. So I don't know, you want to take one of those on and what do we know or how do you treat it? Well, there's actually a very elegant study of pediatric emergency rooms across the United States that showed kids with ADHD were more likely to get into accidents, be more severely injured, including coma scale, and take a longer time to recover. So we know that people with ADHD are more likely to get in accidents. We've seen that in some of the adult data as well. And I think people who are in accidents can often develop PTSD. I think when you've got somebody with PTSD, you really want to make sure we've asked again about ADHD as a comorbid symptom and that we treat that appropriately. Borderline personality disorder, I. I think that because, as we saw in our patient example number two today, you can be very mercurial depending on where you are with your ADHD. You don't always respond the same way in the workplace. Somebody may get mislabeled as borderline personality disorder because he's losing his temper, he's losing jobs, he's having a tough time. He could be labeled borderline, but if you go back and get that history of school difficulty his whole life, feeling restless, feeling able to sit still, poor school performance, Go back and treat the ADHD and see what happens to that borderline personality disorder. Yeah, we can't change the personality disorder very easily, but we can certainly see if the personality changes after we treat the ADHD. And, there, and there's data, older data, uh, by Wallace Shechem, who was one of the first researchers in ADHD adult, in adults, that showed high rates of personality disorders, particularly narcissistic and borderline personality in that population. So one can expect the overlap. Uh, as you were indicating, you got to go ahead and treat them, and maybe it's correct, maybe it's not. Um, there's a, another question here that uh, is interesting, and it's it's we talked about and we saw cases and people worry about mood and ADHD, but if you have an adult that presents with depression and ADHD, how do you treat it? Well, one of the things that I sometimes think about is that third-line treatment for ADHD, which is bupropion. It's an antidepressant that's actually a dopaminergic antidepressant. And I will frequently start somebody on that and maximize treatment with that. And then if they've still got ADHD symptoms, then I'll add in a stimulant. I have other colleagues that'll treat the ADHD first and see how much of the depression is left. But I think it's really what's more impairing. Are you getting into trouble because you're depressed and suicidal? I'm gonna treat that depression first. If you're getting in trouble because you're showing up late for work every day and you're about to be fired, I'm going to treat the ADHD first. We have um, just a couple of minutes left and I have to tell you just unbelievable questions. I'm not just saying it's really, we're just overwhelmed with questions which is just wonderful and a lot of these questions are, it's clear to me people are actually in the trenches and really engaged in the treatment and that's music to my ears to hear that. But it also means we're not going to get through all the questions and I apologize for that. Um, and one of the issues that has come up a few places here, and I don't know if we have an answer, is cost-effectiveness of treatment. Now, Doris, you mentioned a couple of times on the cost issue, some things are approved, there, some things are not. Do we know anything about cost-effectiveness of ADHD treatment in adults? Well, there are a lot of things you can do to mitigate cost. Some of our patients who are earning low salaries because of their ADHD may qualify for some of the patient assistance programs that can help get their medicine free, and that's wonderful, and we are very very thankful for that. Another thing is to minimize the number of unnecessary visits. So we usually see them about once each quarter rather than monthly. 
we also will try very hard to get titration occurring over the phone or uh, without them having to come in. And after a while, it is cost effective for them because they're making more money. They're getting promoted. They're doing better. So I think it's a good investment. And it cuts down on trauma and it cuts down on hospitalizations. So I think it's cost effective and we can certainly minimize the expense. If something long acting is not approved, short acting generics may be what we need to use or using a long acting on the work week or school week and a short acting on the weekends just to minimize the cost. And all I know of is that there's some small studies, largely in kids, that have addressed cost effectiveness, showing it largely, as you were saying, to the system, to the entire system, showing reductions in injuries, reductions in utilize, utilization of extra uh, visits to physicians, et cetera, for treated ADHD. But I'm not sure in adults yet we're there in terms of cost effectiveness. And it sounds like from the questions, and being in the field, it sounds like research that clearly needs to be done. Um, and just wondering, um, as one of our final questions, we talked a little bit about alpha agonists, and can you use them in adults? The long-acting ones are not labeled and tested in adults, but the short-acting medications are labeled and tested in adults all the time for hypertension. So I know from pediatric work that you can co-prescribe an alpha agonist and a stimulant together. And I have some adults where, again, we, we were talking about that 16-hour day not lasting long enough or somebody doing shift work and having to change from the night shift as a nurse to the day shift as a nurse. That's when I'll often use that long-acting alpha agonist to get sort of a lower level of ADHD symptoms and use the stimulant long-acting for the work day. Well. I want to thank you again for all of your questions, and I sincerely want to thank my colleagues for joining me, to, me today. Thank you again, Dr. Adelaide Robb and you. Dr. Doris Greenberg uh, for that much. very practical and very helpful discussion. And thank you to all our audience for joining us today. We sincerely hope we were able to integrate the voice of the patient and the evidence into strategies you can use in your clinical practice to improve the lives of your adult patients with ADHD.